Early on in my recording uh, days, people wanted me to sound like somebody else, you know. And I said, well, I can sound like them, but man, wouldn't it be better to just have me? I'm, it's me, not, not Joe Blow, you know. Because there was a guy that played um, congas for a lot of the Philly International stuff. His name was Larry Washington. He passed on. And, um, uh, man, I used to hate going to the studio and they would say, can you sound like Larry Washington? <laughs> and, man, I didn't want to have to sound like him. But I knew how I could play like he did because he tuned his drums down low. low, And um, um, he basically used the same pattern on all records whether it was fast or slow, you know. So if it was like a or you know, he'd play it fast or slow, but it's a certain way he played made them them, them rhythms fit up in the music because he's on all of the Philly International stuff, all the hits, you know. So I could sound like him. I could sound like Ralph. Now, some of these new young jitterbugs, I can't sound like them because they play too fast and they got a whole lot going on. <laughs> but if you want me to lay that thing in the pocket, that's me. Hey, the pocket's what it's all about. The pocket's where it's at. You know, they told me when I was coming along, they said, if you can play in the pocket, you can be the baddest guy out there. You can play all, you can, you can, you can play like rings around everybody. But if you can't break it down, and chop that wood it don't mean nothing because the guy who can chop wood that knows how to play in the pocket is the one that's going to work the guy that's playing all those hot licks he, everybody's going to be amazed at what he does but his his, ch his chances of working uh, in a variety of situations are limited because he's got all the chops but he doesn't know how to play with every with everyone else there's a big difference between being amazed and thrilled and like, wow, and yeah. really feeling and connecting. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because see, to me, like commercial music, commercial jazz or commercial music, it's got to be done in a way for people to, to hold on to it. What, what, <laughs> what can I hold on to so that I can continue to ride? Now, music back in the 60s, people had another kind of consciousness and a different kind of ear. So when you heard Coltrane or you heard some different miles like Bitches Brew or something, you could grasp anything there and hold on and take the ride. But when music started to change, they had to start breaking it down a little bit more so that people could grab it. You know, today, to me, today, the music is like dumbing down because people don't want to take the time to emerge themselves into the music. They want it to come and they want to get it and they want to keep moving, you know. And when I was younger, me and my buddies on a Friday and Saturday night, instead of hanging out in the street, because I, I live in a gang neighborhood, so we didn't want to be outside because we didn't want to get caught up in that. So we would sit in my parents' house. And my parents had a, 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 a console system where you had to 
turntable and two okay. stools, a cabin, the whole big thing. The cabin. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we would put on jazz records and we would put on a red and blue light like we was in a club. And we would just sit around and just, you know, just listen to the music, you know, and listen to solos, you know. Man, we could hum a guy's solo, you know. So we, we were able to take time to slow down and listen to the music and really feel where it's taking us. Today, the music is dumbing down. So the music has to sound like it's beach funk. It's got to be smooth. Because smooth means you ain't got to be real smart to grab it, you know. Yeah, I was, I was not that's why you don't hear Coltrane on the smooth jazz records. I, I was not a fan of the smooth, smooth uh, jazz uh, movement. <laughs> it's like lobotomizing the jazz, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or, or put on some uh, uh, Archie Shep, the girl from Ipanema. Get with that. And you don't hear that music on the radio, and that music is timeless, you know. But well, that's part of it too. Is now, you know, it's not. It's not only you know. People say the guys don't play like that anymore. They're they're not coming up and, and playing like that anymore. But also, people aren't listening like that anymore. Right. Right. Well, and 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 um, I I fault the record companies. The the. Uh, Years ago, people who were involved in record companies, they knew something about music. They may have been musicians that moved on into that corporate world. Uh, some of them knew uh, about the music, but now you have people who might be Joe Blow's nephew who knows nothing about the music, but he he, he signs and, and, and gets rid of artists, you know, doesn't have a clue of the music. So um people are, are have to be subjected to whatever radio gives us whatever the record companies in there aren't that many record companies anymore well, thank god for the internet though yeah the only thing only only problem with the internet is you can't make money off your records it's because yeah everybody nobody's buying records anymore everybody streams so the only way you can make a record and make any money off or, or recoup your money that you put out is by touring and selling it at live engagements. But now, how do I get a live engagement in Seattle? They don't know me. And there's no radio station that they can go to to listen uh, to my music. But they can go to Spotify and listen to me. And then, well, I'm listening to him for free. Why do I want to pay to have him come here to, to perform? So man, it's, it's kind of crazy, you know. It's messed up on the business side. It's messed up, but oh, yeah. in terms of exposure and people being able to discover something, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you have a better chance, and 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 you have a better chance because of the technology of putting out your own music, you know. Um, so I mean, in one respect, it's good. Another respect, you know, it's it's an adventure, you know, and. How do you navigate through it? I, I'm I'm so glad I didn't I'm, I didn't come up in this era because uh, you know for me um, it's it's a big deal that uh, not enough groups carry a percussionist anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when I was coming along with Grover, everybody who was an opening act had a percussionist with with them. You know, either a conga player or a percussionist. There's a difference. 
The guy that plays congas, that's all he plays. The percussionist plays uh, congas, timbales, bongos, shakers, cowbell, boom, boom, boom. He's playing a variety of stuff. So there aren't that many groups to carry percussionists. You know, so for me and my instrument, for me, it's a big deal now because not enough people know the contributions that African-American hand drummers made to the music long before the Africans and the Cubans and the whoever came to America, you know. There were guys here already that, that created and, and, and played the music. And really, to me, they, made, they laid the groundwork for those other folks to come here and make a living, you know. Yes. So most people don't know if, if, you, if you're over 60, then you know a record that came out years ago called Drums of Passion. Michael Olatunji came out 60, 61, something like that. And that, that record um, was a turning point for African-Americans because here was a record that was, that was bringing forth uh, music from Africa that, that we related to, especially hand drumming, you know. Um, we could relate to that. But most people don't know Olatunji was the only African on that record. All the other drummers were African-American. And the dancers were all African-American. So they were the ones that really um, helped to sell that record. And that Drums of Passion was a, was a big seller for Columbia Records. Because it was like a, was a wide, it just opened up the world. Because right before that was the beatnik era. So people coming out of the beatnik era, and here's a record with, with all drums, and man, I can relate. So it, it got all that beatnik crowd, and then it got all of the African-Americans who was trying to find their culture, and boom, here it is. Man, that was a killer record. But now today, that kind of record wouldn't sell at all. No. You know, no. wouldn't sell. <laughs> so <laughs> the business. Did, did did you kind of uh, scream bloody murder when you first heard electronic drums and percussion? Uh, to an extent, but then you know, like uh, when the when it, when the electronics started coming out, it, it came out in the way of pads and stuff like that, and you was hitting something. That, but then after a while, they started sampling, and then keyboard players thought that they could do what percussionists do, because I got his sounds right here in the, in the keyboard, you know, and that's when I got mad, because it's like, man, these bums is taking my gig, because mm -hmm. what I do and the way I play, I studied and got this way. It didn't just come overnight, you know. So how can a keyboard player or a sax player or whatever sit down and figure out what kind of percussion stuff I'm going to put in my music to sounds like a percussionist did it? You know, I'll tell a guy in, in, a, in, a, in a heartbeat, yeah, your record sounds good, but, but it sounds like you did the percussionist, you know. And man, I won't go see a band if the percussionist ain't good. Because I'm going to be pretty pissed off that I got to sit and watch a band and the guy up there is not hitting, you know. I'm not going to name any names, but there was a guy, he, he, his hands never touched the drums. And that's bad. How you playing a hand drum and your hand don't touch? He's hitting the drum with sticks. And I mean, you can play the drum with sticks, but that's not what congas were made for. They were made to play with your hands, you know, skin on skin. So 
we're in a whole nother kind of era now. I'm trying to keep the drum alive. You know, let's keep the drum alive. <laughs> I got, uh, these are some small pictures, but um, there's uh, one of your other guys, Bob James. Right. Yeah. Wow. So I want to talk about him a little bit too and, and your work with Bob James. Okay. Um, I'm also a big fan of his all the way back to, uh, you know, four, his four album and heads and, Right, all that stuff, and then you came kind of right after that. Right, right. We've right. worked with him for for many years. So, for, uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, I first met Bob on a session Grover took me to. It was a Bob James session and Westchester Lady, which is on that four album, I think. And so that everybody was there recording at the same time. There was no overdubbing going on. And that's when I met Ralph McDonald also. So a couple of years later, um, I got the call from Bob um, that he was gonna go out and, and promote uh, a record called One on One with him and Earl Clue. And um, it was probably um, maybe a year or so after I had left Grover and I got the call with Bob. So I started touring with Bob like around 77, I believe. And, and and Bob used to go to Japan every year. So for about 10 years straight, we were going back and forth to Japan. And that was a whole nother experience because now you got people over there that know you, know what records you're on. I, I used to have people, we'd, we'd check into the hotel and we'd be, and be people there to, I want you to autograph the records that you're on. Some of them had records I had never even seen that I was on, you know? so. The Japanese would do their research and they knew the musicians, they knew the artists, the musicians who played behind the artists. So that was a hell of an experience, you know. And then uh, recording with Bob was always a lot of fun because for me, sometimes it was always different. Sometimes he would have everybody there recording at the same time. Sometimes it would be overdubs. I would be coming in and just me and him in the studio record, uh, and I'm doing overdubs. Um, one time he even had, uh, he, he had the ideas for the songs and he had recorded them electronically. And he had us listening to those, but playing our own thing. You know, Bob was very experimental in, with the electronic stuff, you know? So that was always a lot of fun in terms of the technology that he would always incorporate. One time he had, um, we had went on the road and he had he had some recorded music and we were playing along with the recorded music and putting some other stuff on top of it. It was crazy, you know. But that was that was long before anybody even was thinking about record, doing, uh, doing tracks, you know. That was that one. That was back in the eighties that we were doing that, and it's, and when it, when it wasn't a regular thing, he did it maybe on one or two tunes because he wanted to see how that would work, you know, and and it wasn't until maybe ten years later that people started to realize a lot of uh, R and B groups are using tracks. That's when people found out about Millie Vanilli, mm -hmm. where they weren't singing on those on those tunes or or live on. It was all tracks, you know. And everybody got down on them and they took their Grammys away. But then after that, everybody started doing it, you know? Yeah, so you got a bunch of acts today that go out and they got, they, everybody's playing to recorded music. 
man, that's, that's, oh, man, that's, I couldn't do it. I don't you know? get it. I don't get it. I mean, you got a band on stage, but the band is playing, but we really got tracks that you hear. It makes no sense to me, you know. Yeah. Uh, why not just leave the band home and uh, just go out in front and play the, and sing the recorded music? People would be pissed, I think, you know. I don't think people even know. I think the music has been dummied down so long and that folks don't even realize whether they're listening to tracks or they're listening to real musicians. I don't think people even know. Well, a big part of that too, Doc, was the the music videos. So that made it sort of where they wanted to replicate what right. the video was like in a stage setting. And it's like to hell with the actual playing and music. It's, right, right, you know, right. Out the window. Yeah. And Grover used to say, I don't like, I don't want to record and put a whole lot of stuff on the record. And then I got to try to replicate that live. So that's what always kept his music earthy and funky and accessible. And so, like you said, today, people are trying to replicate a video that doesn't have anything to do with the music. It's about the mu movement. It's about visually what, what's going on. And so that's what people are more interested in is, the, is what's visual as opposed to what's happening here and yeah. here. Yeah. Doc, um Talk to me about anything that might stand out to you in your mind, uh, personality-wise, talent-wise, about some of the other people that you did work with, like a George Benson, and Earl Klug, um, you know, well, those kinds of guys, what, what stands out? Well, I only worked with George off and on, like I said, whenever he was close to Philly. So that was, it was, a fun, it was playing, fun playing his gig, but... It was the kind of gig that I, it really wasn't my gig because if, if George was going to LA, I didn't get the call, you know? Mm -hmm. So my involvement with him wasn't, was kind of like part-time, you know? Mm -hmm. But playing with Earl Clue was a lot of fun because we connected through the one-on-one -on -one tour with, with um, Bob James. And so um, I did a, I, I don't think I really toured with him, but I did a couple of records with him and maybe a few gigs, spot gigs. Um, the other gig that stands out in my mind is touring and recording with Al Jarreau, uh, cause that was big for me. Um, um, cause I had, I had, Al, Al used to open for Grover when he was just a trio. And I always loved the way he played, and I was always checking him out when they were playing and we were getting ready. I'd always run out and check him out. So I got in tight with him and his manager. And so throughout the years, I noticed that Al was getting bigger and, and, and he was hiring more musicians. And so I said, man, if he ever wants to use percussions, keep me in mind. Well, they had a guy from, from uh, I think he was from the Gambia, he was an incredible player, but he got—he kept getting into trouble. You know, he's one of those guys, a great player, but once he got off the stage, watch out, because he—he—he'd get into stuff. You know, and uh, periodically the road manager would call me and say, "Yeah, Doc, um, he messed up again. You know, I don't know if Al's going to get rid of him this time, but you know, I'm going to keep you posted." So in between all of that, I ended up um, the people who managed Al—they called me to do a tour with Ricky Lee Jones, which was uh, very special. Um, and that particular gig I auditioned for, 
And they flew me from Philly out to L.A. I got to L.A. maybe five in the evening. Uh, 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 a limo picked me up at six. We went to the, do a little jam session with some of the band members. I played two or three tunes. Went back to the hotel. The next morning, I'm back to Philly. <laughs> and I got the call. You got the gig. I was like, snap. Wow. Okay. So, you know, um, the tour we did with Ricky, she was, she was incorporating theatrics and, and uh, set design with her show. You know, the music was just a part of um, narration and stuff that she had going on. So that was a different gig, you know. And then um, working with her was, was real special. So right after that, I got the gig with Al Jarreau. His people called me and said, you know, uh, the percussionist didn't work out and, he, and he's quitting the band. So if you want the gig, it's yours. I was like, when do we start? You know, so um, I was already in L.A. I had just uh, recorded a video with out with bob james for the uh queen mary jazz festival and um so i had about six days off in la and then i started rehearsals with al and i worked with al from like 85 to about 91 something like that and we toured all around the world that was man that was his his gig was a lot of fun because we were playing like big stadiums once we got to europe we were playing like nine thousand seater places we played a spot in paris where we played fifteen thousand people two nights straight it wow. was algero and uh, david sanborn was the opening act and the ironic thing was when i got the gig with al sanborn was the opening act and sanborn said to me man you think you could do my gig too i said you damn skippy i can do both of them not a problem <laughs> so the whole Pretty much the whole summer of 85, I did uh, Sanborn first, then came back out and did Jerome. And then if Jerome had days off, Sanborn would maybe go off and do a, a gig or two somewhere else. And so I did that pretty much to up until September. And then we were going to Europe and that's when I had to get somebody to take my place because I had to decide which one of those gigs I was going to take. So, of course, I stayed with Al, you know, because Al just gave me the freedom to play. And, you know, he's so percussive that, you know, uh, we'd have a set that we would do every night, but it wouldn't be nothing for him to just come out of the set and start doing some vocalizing, percussive vocalizing. We'd start playing, you know. So, man, I mean, Al Jarreau was a big one for me. It was, it was like, it was beautiful, man. It was a great gig, you know. Yeah. Good gig oh, and a beautiful cat, man. I was really sorry to see him pass on, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was it like, was it like uh, when, when when Grover passed on too? Did, how, how hard did that hit you? Oh man, well, you know, I mean, um, at the time I was doing the Emerald Live show, and I was we're trying to get Grover on the show, but it was hard getting the scheduling together, you know. So, um, you know. Uh, I had been, I'm, I'm, you know, me and Grover remained friends after we stopped working together. And uh, so, man, I don't remember. I don't remember where I was when I got the word that he had passed on. But, man, it was like, man, it was it was a shock, you know, because, well, we was young, you know. Yeah. And, and man, he 
you know, made such an impact on the music. So, uh, you know, his passing, uh, you know, really left, left a, a hole in my heart, you know. And then, you know, so many others passed on after him, you know, because, you know, Ralph McDonald passed on, you know, maybe 10 years after Grover, I'm not sure, but Ralph passed and, you know, and then Al, he passed just last year, you know. So now we're losing uh, all these great musicians and and I have to look it down. I'm, I'm, I'm up there taking their place, you know. I'm that guy that young guys are looking at, you know, because uh, now me and other cats are the, the elders now. We'll be becoming the elders, you know, so. Well, it's well, very, very important, important to, uh, you know, continue to carry forth um, the message of those that aren't with us anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's important. Yeah. So, so, so you put out your own record in 2002. Uh, why did it take you so long? And. What, what what do you can you tell us about that experience? Well, um, you know, uh, that's when the music had changed. Because see, before that, I never once once the uh, locksmith experience and, and uh, what we experienced with lock, with uh, Arista and all of that, I I, I was kind of like not really interested in in recording and because. You know, you, you had to do a demo and then you had to submit the demo and try to get a deal. I, I just wasn't into that at the time. And when things changed and it became more easier to record, I just started pulling my money together. And I said, I'm, I'm going to go in the studio and I'm going to put out my own stuff, you know, and see what happens, you know. So um, uh, I was able to get uh, some good friends that came on. And at the time when we recorded, uh, we were able to uh, put the music on a VHS tape. They called it a, they called it a uh, ADAC. And we could send the tape to people in different locations and they could put their part on and then send it back to us and we could download it back into the computer. So I ended up putting Gerald Albright and Patches Stewart. Both of them lived out, well, Patches lived here in LA. Gerald lived in Denver. So we just they just sent the VH tape from one location to the next and they put their parts on. So that was kind of revolutionary in terms of uh, recording that way, you know, so. And and I recorded a studio that was really up on the technology and, and computers and all of that. So I got into it, you know, and I was able to sell my records at, uh, you know, Grover at, um, uh, Emerald's restaurants, and uh, and at the time, people were able to contact me, and I would send the, send the records out. So I haven't done another one. I'd like to do another record. I, actually, I'm working on. Uh, uh, since I've been out here in LA, I've created um, what I call healing sound therapy, and I use a variety of different percussion instruments and drums for healing. And so I'm doing, I'm working on a CD of healing sounds, which I'll sell when I do these performances. Mm -hmm. So I might be able to make a little money with that, you know, because <laughs> so I didn't make no money off the other one. So do you think we'll see that in 2018? Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, 
I don't even know how that's going to be released because, uh, you know, the whole I what, what's happening now is just kind of passing me by in terms of marketing and what do you do with how do you get people to hear your, your record? That's why I'm doing something that I think is more uh, needed in terms of healing spiritually. You know, like reconnecting mind, body, and spirit. You know. Um, because of the days and times that we live in now, we need healing. You know, everybody needs healing, you know, and we don't know where things are headed, but we do know we're going to need some healing no matter where it's going because I doubt it's going to go somewhere and get better. Mm -hmm. We have not seen things get better. Things are beginning worse and worse. And worse. So I don't think it's going to get any better. So we need the healing more than ever, you know. So that's the direction I'm going because I said earlier, my instrument's not used in the music anymore, you know? And uh, that's that's really sad and unfortunate because people don't know just what beauty can be added to the music when you get a real percussion, somebody that can play, you know? Um, a lot of young people that are playing now don't want to study with older people, you know? I wish I knew someone like myself when I was coming along because I wouldn't have made as many mistakes that I made if I'd have known someone like me or just knowing somebody like me who could just put me down with how to maneuver through this stuff, you know? Yeah. And um, so, you know, all of that is being lost when um, uh, percussionists from back in the day, my peers and cats that I came up with, when we all pass on, man, there's not going to be too many people behind us because this, this is going to tell a story, you know? And so that's important to me. And how do we get that story out? You know, Doc, as I look at today's landscape, you know, um, it's not quite the same because she focuses on timbales mostly, but would you think of someone like a Sheila E maybe as somebody who's at least keeping percussion somewhat in the uh, public view? Uh, well, you know, Sheila E is like... And her family? Yeah, yeah they, they, we're all kind of like in the same boat, you know. Um, just as Sheila E is, you, you know her and you see her. Um, she's bigger. And I think, you know, um, what she's doing is keeping it alive, but... Um, uh, uh, in terms of the, the percussion as an instrument, because Sheila plays timbales and drum set, congas, but she don't play no percussion. See, the difference between a percussionist, especially African-American percussionists, is that we're exposed to everybody's culture. You know, a guy that plays in Cuba that comes here from Cuba, he's got his technique and his style of playing, but he's not gonna play like the guy from Brazil. Guy in Brazil plays different instruments anyway. So you're not going to find bata drums in Brazil. And you won't find a guica from Brazil in Cuba. Nor will you find none of those instruments in Guinea, West Africa. Mm -hmm. You'll find the djembe in Guinea. You ain't going to find no guica in, in, in Guinea. You, you, you might find, a, you're not going to find no timbales in Guinea. You can come to my house, you're gonna find timbales, you're gonna find congas, you're gonna find bata, you're gonna find 
Brazilian instruments. You're going to find a djembe. You're going to find the accompanying djembe. I'm exposed to everybody's culture. So that, to me, makes my approach a little different than the guy that comes from one of these places because he's playing specifically what he was taught, his thing. Me as a percussionist, I'm exposed to everybody's thing, you know. And I'm playing instruments that most of these folks, other folks aren't going to be aware of. Like I play an instrument called a Kamale and Guni. It's a six string instrument that comes from Mali. Um, you're not going to find too many people playing that instrument unless they're from Mali. You know, you come to my house, I got the Kamali and Guni. What about for like uh, soundtracks? Have you done any of that kind of work? It seems like. What's that? What about uh, for doing a film or TV soundtrack work? Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. But man, uh, I, I've been here in L.A. two years. And there's a bunch of guys ahead of me in, in that department. <laughs> it's like being in an orchestra. You can't get in until that guy dies, you know. <laughs> so getting in on the soundtracks is kind of rough. I love to do that because, I mean, a lot of the percussion instruments I hear in, in soundtracks, and I could definitely, you know, add my thing to it. But getting up in that, you know, uh, um, and most of the time, you don't even know who those guys are. I know the, the biggest one is a guy named Emil Richards. He's got to be about 85, 90. They say he's got a huge warehouse of all percussion and drum stuff. And he's on, a, he's on like, he's like on uh, probably the majority of the movies from back in the day. He's retired now. So like Alex Acuna does a lot of movie stuff. Matter of fact, that's all he does now. You don't even see him traveling or touring. And I think Paulinho da Costa is probably doing the movie stuff too, you know. Those guys got it all locked up. I can't get in the door, <laughs> man. <laughs> you'll, you'll find your way in. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> you, still, you still got that triangle there? Yeah, man. <laughs> triangle ain't left me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. I'll never leave. I got a bunch of them, man. <laughs> and I know how to strike them so they don't spin around either. <laughs> Hey, Doc, I really appreciate you spending so much time and sharing all these great insights of your experience as a player about percussion and, and the Philadelphia scene and just all of it was just great. Um, is there yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Any, anything we didn't talk about, Doc, that you just want to kind of get out there? Uh, I think we might have covered about everything. You know, I just I think the main thing is um, we got we to gotta bring, we got to make sure that live music especially live music that use percussionists remains alive and it doesn't die and that it will transcend whatever the future holds for us it'll always be there that's the main thing i i i, I if we take if we can't take anything else away from this whole thing it's, it's got to be that the beauty of the music and the musician and the artist has to live and as we pass on there have to be people that continue it on and and on and on into the future and folks have an opportunity to experience this so like i said earlier this show that you have here is beautiful because people will be able to go online and 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 hear what musicians have to say how what what we think about you know Absolutely. what concerns that we have so i think we covered everything man Amen. i think we're golden as they say <laughs> Amen on those sentiments, Doc. Um, 
how, how can uh, everyone keep up with with you and, and keep in touch with you and find out when maybe you're going to put out that uh cd you're talking about okay um the easiest way to keep up with me is facebook and i have a doc gibbs facebook page and also a baba doc facebook page the baba doc is um uh dedicated to sound healing and sound therapy so that's got more of what i'm doing now and the doc gives us you know kind of like what i've been doing all along and my thoughts and comments on what's happening on facebook you know i don't do a whole lot of commenting on my baba doc page it's just more sounds and people experiencing what i'm doing i just did a uh, sound therapy for some ladies last weekend. So some pictures are up about that, you know, looking to develop that kind of thing more. Okay. Well, so, wish you the best of luck with that. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you contacting me and giving me the opportunity to tell my story. My pleasure. I'm going to close this out here. Just hang, hang loose okay. for a minute. All right. All right. So going to wrap up this edition of Truth and Rhythm. A huge thanks to my special guest, Mr. Leonard Doc Gibbs, one of the most distinguished jazz, funk, and R&B percussionists of his generation. Thank you again so much for sharing your time, Doc. My pleasure. Sincere thank you to listeners and viewers. And um, be sure to look out for upcoming episodes of Truth and Rhythm. Catch up on previous installments on FunkinStuff.net, on YouTube, iTunes, and other leading providers. Want to hear from you? Drop me an email at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know who you might want to see on the show, what you like, what you don't like. Want to hear from you. And so, on behalf of Doc Gibbs, this is Scott, Dr. GX Goldfine, the other doc in the house today. As always, saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>